Good day to you, and welcome to Fascinating. I am your host, Rick, from Planet Vulcan. My continuing mission on planet Earth, to search for signs of intelligence and to encourage its spread. In academia, a current topic that is much discussed is the idea of social construction. Is this mere intellectual fashion, or is there something to it? Contributing editor Slancha Nazdrovia submits the following essay on this topic. Slancha writes, There is a trivial sense in which the idea that conceptual systems that we all use in the real world are social constructs is clearly valid. Percepts and concepts are what the brain uses to engage with the natural world. Nothing phenomenal about this. But as so often happens in academia, some thinkers try to turn something trivial into something remarkable. It's a tried and true method of building a career. And many careers have been and are being built, as that is what has happened with the idea of social construction. To make the idea seem remarkable, academics have thrown in the ideas that if everything is a social construct, then all things are relative, and any story we tell ourselves is as good as any other. And anything that can be imagined can be constructed and that nothing that has not been constructed is real until the construction takes place. If these ideas impress you as silly, but you are not quite sure that they might not be deep and important, I assure you that they are indeed only silly. It's fairly simple to demonstrate how nonsensical this Solipsism 2.0 is, but there is a baby in the bathwater and we shouldn't throw it out. Because there is a sane and useful way to conceive of social construction, a way that is consistent with evolutionary thinking and the way of nature, and which recognizes that we humans are a part of nature and subject to constraints that nature places on all living creatures. For example, values and prices, and also money, are social constructs. It's fascinating to take a step back and think about money. To be money, money does not need to have any value other than that it is accepted as a token of value in the present and in anticipated future exchanges. Some kinds of money work better than other kinds, depending on how the money is produced, but that's another story. So money in practice is something that is continuously constructed by the simple fact that it is being offered and accepted as money. What about value? My colleague Prego Donata wrote an entire essay on the subject in Season 2, and if you want a more thorough examination of the concept and its history, I encourage you to listen to it. For the purpose of this essay, it is enough to say that value does not exist apart from the ones doing the valuing. Why then do so many people speak of intrinsic value, something that is in some sense more fundamentally real than opinions about value? But when you pause and reflect on what might be thought of as intrinsic about value, there's nothing there. 
Value is always in the eye of the valuer. So if there is no such thing as intrinsic value, where does that leave us? If we just accept the idea that all value is subjective and run with it, it turns out that upon that foundational notion we can create a theoretical edifice that is most revealing, and one that again demonstrates what a social construct actually is. It works like this. An individual forms an opinion about the value of something they wish to acquire. They then compare their opinion of value to what they would have to give up to get it, that is, the price, which may be denominated in currency or denominated in some other measure. If their subjective valuation is greater than or equal to the price, they pay the price. If their subjective valuation is less than the price, they pass. Prices, in monetary terms, and it's important to note, again, that prices and values apply much more broadly than just to monetary ones, themselves respond to the information about supply and demand contained in the asks, the bids, and the transactions that occur and are continuously adjusting in response to new information. And thus it is that the monetary price of something emerges continuously in such a way that it converges on and tracks a consensus estimate of monetary value. There is nothing more than this or less than this to value and price. Moral value is another type of value that is socially constructed. This idea is troubling to many people because they evidently think that moral values are universal and eternal and in some sense discoverable, and the idea that moral value is a social construct seems like a thin reed upon which to hang your moral beliefs. But I think we can save the day by recognizing that although the moral landscape is a social construct, it is not an arbitrary construct that might conceivably be constructed in any way that someone wishes to impose upon us or that we collectively desire. Because the actual moral landscape we inhabit emerges as the result of myriad human actions. And it is these actions that provide the energy flows that organize the system and create the moral landscape. If you approach it from this angle, and not from the angle that the moral landscape is something that exists independently, you can see the moral landscape as something that is literally being continuously constructed before our very eyes. In other words, the idea of a social construct is now set upon an operational explanation, which provides more profound understanding than claiming, just because of general principle, that the moral landscape is a social construct. This is because the moral landscape is something that evolves based on human action and not something that is intelligently designed and imposed. And the human actions are typically based on rules, such as the golden rule in advanced societies and in less advanced societies by the rule that I can do anything to you that you can't stop me from doing. Sometimes the human actions and consequent energy flows are such that the moral landscape the actions create is awful. For example, during the unbelievably savage 
Thirty Years' War that racked Europe in the 17th century, where social order broke down completely. This is the war that inspired Thomas Hobbes to write his Leviathan. At those times when the moral landscape is hospitable to the thriving of most of the populace, it happens because most human action, most of the time, is based on something like the Golden Rule. If a critical mass of humans follows the Golden Rule, then mutual trust and goodwill is what is spread by the energy flows. And mutual trust is not just something that feels good. It is also what a thriving economy is based on. Being trusted and trustworthy, and trusting others who are trustworthy, saves an awful lot of time when it comes to doing mutually beneficial transactions. Widespread prosperity is the result of the virtuous circle that then takes place. It also casts a skeptical light on the generalization that poor people steal because they are poor. A more valid generalization would be that poor people are poor because they steal, consequently not worthy of trust, and are thus blocking themselves from participation in mutually beneficial transactions that lead to general prosperity. A final example. Automobile traffic flows are socially constructed on infrastructure that is literally constructed. The surprisingly smooth flows of traffic that we witness so much of the time is the result of most of the drivers on the road most of the time behaving in a way that respects right-of-way. Right-of-way is normally unambiguous and most of the time people observe it. You frequently hear people generalize about how awful other drivers are, just as they generalize about how awful people are in the world of production and commerce. These generalizations stem from attention-grabbing incidents people witness. In both cases, however, if you took the time to observe, you would note that most drivers, most of the time, and most people in business most of the time, are behaving properly. These incidents of churlish behavior are in truth not all that common. The traffic system works well for several reasons. First, people understand that a smoothly functioning traffic system benefits everyone, so they voluntarily observe right-of-way. And, number two, reality, in the form of collisions with other cars, frequently intrudes upon flagrant violations of -of right-of-way. This is why even those among us who are not motivated by politeness most of the time stay on their side of the road and stop at red lights anyway. And, of course, we also have law officers who are empowered to penalize those who violate the law. Such penalties are relatively rare, of course, because the other two motivations are so effective. So try flipping your Necker cube and have a look from a new perspective. Thanks to Slancha for this essay. I invite you to have a listen to the next installment of Fascinating and look for the upcoming Fascinating YouTube channel. Please provide feedback to these podcasts if you are so inclined. You may contact me by sending an email to senior contributing editor Prego Denada. Prego Denada at gmail.com. 
If you find the lessons from nature in these podcasts personally valuable, please recommend it to your friends. Theme music, coming back to life, with thanks to Pink Floyd. Live long and prosper. Savor your experiences and treasure your memories. And respect nature's wisdom.